Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor David. So glad to be worshiping the Lord with you during this Christmas season. And thank you for braving the snow to be here very early in the morning. In fact, we haven't shoveled our snow yet. So our, our driveway is kind of filled with it. Now, before I begin the sermon, I want to bring your attention to one of the inserts in the bulletin that says journey classes. So if you would grab that, uh, I will go through that and explain exactly uh, what these are and connect the dots for you. Last week, you heard that we will be offering, come January, four classes called journey classes. And there are the descriptions of the classes, journey 101, 201, 301, and 401, short descriptions, and, uh, and the room numbers, and who will be teaching, and all of that. And the question that comes about is, why are we offering these classes? And if you'd flip over to the next page, that's where I would like to connect the dots for you. In other words, here at Midland Free, we are all trying to grow and become disciple-makers of Jesus. And back in January, for example, we launched... Uh, a spiritual growth pathway that kind of looks like this. It's a round circle, and uh, if you walk over to the ministry connection boards, you will see them. They are there. And again, you know, one cannot become a born-again believer and next day become a disciple-maker. It is a journey, and sometimes it takes years to get there, and none of us become perfect in this world, and therefore we are always growing, always becoming what Christ wants us to be. So what we are doing here, these four classes, as you see there, correspond to the four stages that we have defined here. The first one is people who are not yet born again believers. And so we are calling that the exploring Christianity class. So if you have questions about Christianity, Christ, the Bible, whatever, and this might be the class for you, and the leaders will be prepared to answer those questions for you. And the second one is actually for new disciples. And one of the things that we are trying to do is to help you grounded in the faith uh, by enabling you to practice your spiritual disciplines of Bible study and prayer and, uh, and walking with God, how to walk by the Spirit, and all of those things will be covered in that particular class. And then from there on, then we, we go to what is called the faith in action. Now that we are, we are growing in Christ, we need to put our faith in action. In fact, the apostle James says, you know, faith without works is dead. Faith produces works, good works. And so that's the faith in action class. And then finally, the, the disciple-making class that Jesus, as the departed this earth, he, he told his disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always through the ends of the earth. And that class will help you uh, in, the, in the journey of becoming disciple makers. And back in January, we also gave a, a spiritual assessment tool because here at Midland Free, we have also defined the eight characteristics of disciple-makers. And it is an assessment tool that you could assess on your own if you would like to take the assessment and talk with one of your friends or you know, whatever that you want to do. What we are encouraging and calling on you to do is to identify one or two areas that you would like to grow in 
in 2017. And then choose the class appropriately. It is about making small changes along the pathway so that we would become what Christ wants us to be. And so that's why we are offering these classes and more information to come, of course, come January. But we wanted to give you that opportunity, a heads up, so as you are planning a new year, you might also want to consider the classes that are being offered. Good? All right. Now let's get to the sermon. For the past two years, I have been meeting weekly with a group of men from our church. And this group of men has covenanted together to encourage and challenge one another to become disciple makers. And based on that covenant and our goal, we keep each other accountable for personal worship, spiritual growth, pursuit of holiness, and missional living. So one of the very first things that we did was to get to know one another. Where are we spiritually? Where have we, where have we come from? And where are we today? And so we went through an exercise of sharing our spiritual journeys in a pictorial form. Some of you may have done this already. So here's mine. I cannot share anybody else's, so here's mine. It's an abbreviated form of my spiritual journey. And let me walk you through. I was born into a Christian family. So what you do is actually in the x-axis, you will put some significant dates along your life journey. And on the y-axis, how, how you felt spiritually. Is it up? Is it down? That kind of an idea. So here's mine. I was born into a Christian family, so I started off reasonably well, as a small child can be. Then, a few years into my life, I lost one of my younger sisters. She died of rheumatism. In our part of the world, we call them rheumatic fever. And she died of that. So shocking to lose somebody like that at a small age, and she's younger than me. And then a year later, my mom passed away of breast cancer. These were the days that we did not know what breast cancer was. We didn't talk much about it. And there was a lump. We didn't think much about it. And by the time it was diagnosed as cancer, it was too late. And she died. And as kids, we did not know this was going on. And suddenly, my our mom passed away. And so that was another downer. So you see, first few years of my life was very tough. And then what happened was, for the, from 1968 to 1980, for the period of 12 years, I was in this wilderness, if you will. I stopped going to church. And I went only when my family members kind of forced me to go. My heart wasn't there. And so I was in this wilderness for about 12 years. And then in 1918, my final year of college, I had a dramatic conversion experience. It's a long story, so I wouldn't even try to explain what happened, how it came about, and all of that. It was my final year in college. I had a dramatic conversion experience. And you see there, the next eight years, from 1980 to 88, 
my life was characterized by tremendous spiritual growth. After graduation from college, I went back, back to my hometown. I was teaching at the university there at the time, and then I was leading the youth and the young adult ministry in my home church. Tremendous growth to be an example for some of the uh, kids and young, young men and women who are coming behind me. A year later in 1981, I came to the United States and landed in University of Wisconsin-Madison, which happens to be the headquarters of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And it is there that I found David Bryant, who was working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the time. And uh, some of you have seen him, some of you have heard him preach here at Midland Free during the interim period between two preaching pastors and all of that. And... Uh, he met with me every day, morning at about 7 o'clock, he came to my little apartment. And he and I sat and studied the Bible together, and we prayed. And he suggested books to read, and I read them all, and very instrumental. And he did that all throughout my graduate school, all five years, every Thursday morning, except for the time when he was on vacation or I was someplace else. That's the kind of investment that he made in my life. And then I graduated from graduate school and married Jem, a godly woman, and got my real job, first job. So money was coming in, right? And things are going very well. And together we grew. We, together we prayed. Together we did things together. And uh, spiritual growth continued in that pathway. Then we had our first child. And some of you might be surprised that I have it as a downer. Not, believe me, I, I we love our kids dearly. They are a blessing from God. But here's the bottom line for us. It may not be true for you. We were totally unprepared. She came and she changed everything. In fact... I was also a university professor at the time, so pressures of having to raise money to do research work, publish papers, get tenure at the university, coupled with the fact when I came home, having looked, at the, uh, looked after the kid for the whole day, Jim was tired, so when I came home, she wasn't there for me. We stopped praying together. We stopped studying the Bible together. That's why it's a downer, not for any other reason. And she, she, my oldest daughter was a great gift from God, and we love her dearly. And she's now married and has her own child, and you know, we, we continue to have a wonderful relationship with her. But her coming in changed our life. I wish we had a faith at home center, you know, when the church that I went to. It wasn't there. I wish we had marriage mentors to walk alongside of us. They were not there. And that's why I'm so excited that Midland Free is committed to those kinds of things. There's a faith at home center that provides all kinds of resources, rich resources. In fact, every time our oldest daughter and her husband come here, we make it a point to take them over there. And, and if there are new stuff, we give it to them. Then in 1998, our home church 
in Massachusetts. We, that's where we were living at the time. Called me to become their missions pastor. That in and of itself is a long story, how we were called. For example, Jim started, I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when Jim and I were engaged, before be, uh, being engaged, I told Jim there's a call like this in my life. And you know what she said? I prayed I would never be married to a pastor. So as we began this journey, there was no support. But it, it, when it was time to really leave the job that I had and to become missions pastor, she told me that that job is for you, and if you don't take it, I will be very disappointed. And that's how that call came. And I served there for eight years, and eight years later, I came to Midland Free in 2006. Now, this is an abbreviated version. During this time, I lost my dad. And in fact, he died suddenly of a heart attack. And I couldn't even go to his funeral. I was in the middle of doing something. I was at the university at the time. I was in the middle of teaching a class. And I couldn't go. Furthermore, just two years ago, I lost my younger brother to cancer. So that's my life story, an abbreviated version of my life story that I shared with the group of men that I'm accountable to. And similarly, everybody shared. And you, you see what you see there in the picture is that it is filled with peaks and valleys, times of spiritual growth and times of spiritual setbacks. In fact, at times it felt like spiritual defeats. And not so surprisingly, everybody else's in the group looked the same. Peaks and valleys, spiritual growth and spiritual defeats, setbacks. You see, in Christ, God has promised a glorious future for his people. Right? And there are several Bible verses that I could quote, by the way. I have chosen just one arbitrarily. And here's one Bible verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, but God has prepared for those who love him. That's a glorious promise. Yet, the path to that glorious promise seems like a difficult zigzag filled with setbacks and defeats rather than an easy straight line. Perhaps some of you might be identifying with that. So what I want to do in the sermon this morning is this, that I want to look at two lives, two individuals and their lives. Joseph in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. And here's what I would like to show you today. That the path to glory is not a straight line, but a zigzag. 
And what seems like setbacks and defeats are not random events, but carefully designed and orchestrated by God to accomplish his greater purposes. It's about him, not about us. The path to glory is not a straight line, but a zigzag. And what seems like setbacks and defeats are not random events, but carefully designed and orchestrated by God to accomplish his greater purposes. So let's look at the life of Joseph first. Again, in the Bible, it's from it's the Genesis, chapter, Genesis chapter 37 to 50. So it's about 14 chapters that his story is filled with. So we are not going to go through all of them. So I'm going to summarize. Again, I have used the same kind of a, a, a pictorial representation of his life. So see if you can identify with some of this. I'm going to tell the story. Don't want to assume that everybody knows. So I'm going to tell the story as it happened. Now, Jacob, the father of Israel, the nation of Israel, had 13 children. 12 sons and one daughter. And these 12 sons came to be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, overall, Joseph was his 11th son. Not the firstborn, 11th son. But since he was the firstborn of his beloved wife, Rachel, that's the wife that he loved the most, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his children. That's what the Bible says. As a result, his brothers hated him. One of the lessons is, when we have multiple kids, to be very careful not to show any favoritism. In fact, some, some, some of your kids may have asked you, Dad, do you love me or Abigail? Our second one, right? And to be very careful how we handle those kinds of questions. Then here's what happens to Jacob. At the age of 17, so he was, a, he was a teenager at the time, Joseph had a dream, the Bible says, that one day he would become one of the most powerful men in the world. So much so that his parents and brothers would bow down before him. That was the dream. And there are images behind it, but that, in essence, that was the dream. So when he shared with his parents and brothers, his father Jacob rebuked him for having such a dream. And his brother hated him even more. And one day, can you put up the picture up there, please? So there's a picture. You see, Joseph has a dream. And God promises a glorious future for him. And just like everybody else, including us, we expected, or Joseph expected, a straight pathway from this promise to the, the dream to the glorious promise. So what happens is one day while he was taking care of his father's flock with his brothers, they conspired to kill him. That's how much the hatred had become. But one of the brothers, brothers intervened and saved Joseph's life. 
So instead of killing him, they sold him to some traders who were passing by on their way to Egypt. So that's the second. Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. Now get into Joseph's shoes and say, try to imagine the feeling of it. Teenager, never been out of the home. But now he has been ripped from his homeland and taken away from his family as a teenager with no communication whatsoever. There was no email, there was no phone call, there was no text messaging, there's no Skype, there's no FaceTime, nothing. He was gone. That's why it's a downer. Now these traders who bought Joseph from his brothers sold, turned around and sold him as a slave to a high-ranking official in the Egyptian military. His name is Potiphar. But here's what the Bible says. The Lord was with Joseph. So what happened? Joseph prospers in Potiphar's house. So much so, he puts him as the overseer of his entire estate. He trusted him completely, 100%. So if you're like Joseph, you begin to think, maybe this is the time. God's promise was going to be fulfilled. I'm in charge. But that's, that's not what happened. Things turned for worse. Potiphar's wife, who had a crush on Joseph, falsely accused him of trying to have sex with her. That's what happens next. The truth lies elsewhere. Joseph rejected her repeated advances over and over and over again. So t she tells this false story to her husband, and husband, of course, furious, throws Joseph into prison. And there it is. Now, when I use the word prison, you might be thinking of modern-day prisons, which have heat during winter, air conditioning during summer, right? There was television, there's gymnasium where they could go and exercise. There was food. In fact, good food. Otherwise, prisoners might go and strike, right, in this country. You know what this prison was? It was a dungeon. A hole in a cave. No windows. Cold. That's where he was. So again, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How would you have felt? Boy, I must have eaten so much food or something like that. I had this dream that is going to be glorious. There's no way that I could get out of this dungeon. Because it's a, a, one of the chief military officials has accused me and thrown me into this prison. There's no way that I'm going to get out. But again, the Bible says that Joseph, God was with Joseph. So he prospered in the prison. Now it goes up. 
what happens is the prison warden puts Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. And to make a long story short, one day, there were two other prisoners. One was a chief cupbearer to the king, Pharaoh, and the other was a baker who baked food for Pharaoh. They had done something wrong, so Pharaoh threw them into the same dungeon. One day, these two guys have dreams, and Joseph interprets and tells the baker, in three days, the king is going to put you to death. He's going to cut your head off. For the baker, he says, in three days, God, he's going to restore you to your, your original position. And just as Joseph said, it happened. The baker was gone, and the cupbearer was restored to his original position. You know, one of the things that Joseph did, Joseph pleaded with this cupbearer, hey, when you are restored to your original position, remember me, get me out of this prison. And this cupbearer had forgotten Joseph. So what happens is two years, nothing happens. And then King Pharaoh has a dream. And he was so worried about it and he was sharing with all of his people, close and closely people, and the cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph and says, I know of a person who can interpret this dream. And so Pharaoh brings him in. And Joseph interprets that dream correctly. Basically what it is is that there will be seven years of famine, followed by seven years of, excuse me, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And therefore in the, in the years of plenty, let us get ready and prepare for the upcoming famine. And the king was so impressed, he puts Joseph in charge of that particular plan. And the Bible says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. When did he have the dream? At the age of 17. And now he's been restored 13 years later. Where was he all those 13 years? You see the zigzag? That's where he was. Even in those zigzags, in those valleys, the Bible says that God was with him. Then what happens is, you know, seven years of plenty, and then two years into the famine, his family comes looking for food. That's nine years later. So 13 plus 9, 22 years later, the dream that God gave Joseph was completely fulfilled. Because when they came begging for food, they had to bow down before Joseph. But here's what Joseph says to them. What you meant for evil, God used it for good to save many lives. 
You see, it took 22 years for Joseph's dream to be fulfilled. Up until then, he was on the zigzag path, filled with what seemed like roadblocks and setbacks and defeats. Notice this. This is very important. These were not random events, but carefully designed and orchestrated by God to accomplish his greater purpose. What was the greater purpose in this case? To save his chosen people, Israel. Because it was through that line, particularly the tribe of Judah, that Jesus was going to be born. So for Joseph, the path to glory was not a straight line, but a zigzag. And what seemed like setbacks and defeats were not random events, but carefully designed and orchestrated by God to accomplish his greater purposes. God is in the peaks. God is also in the valleys. Now let's look at Jesus. You will see there's an additional point that will come about as we look at Jesus' life. Now remember, Jesus is the second person of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No ordinary person. Extraordinary. Here again, I could have chosen many different scripture texts, but I chose Psalm 110. So if that were to come up on the screen, and you will see this. Psalm 110.1 says this. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Now every time that you see in the Bible... L-O-R-D in capital letters, that refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So the way to read this would be, to the, Yahweh says to my Lord, whoever that is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And Jesus later on comes back and uses this, word, this particular verse to say that L-O-R-D, small letters, that's him. So Yahweh, or the, or in our language, you would say, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. So here is Jesus in heaven getting a promise from Yahweh, God the Father, a glorious one that he would establish Jesus' reign. That's a promise. Now what happens? God the Father sends his son, Jesus, to earth. So it goes down. Why does it go down? Because, for example, the Bibles in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 say this. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, it cost Jesus quite a bit to leave heaven and come down to earth. He was born into a very, very poor family. The family of Mary 
and Joseph. She was born in an animal shelter and kept in a feeding trough after his birth. His family ran away to Egypt because King Herod was trying to kill him. So he was a refugee in Egypt. And he lived a life of poverty all of his life on earth. For himself has said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was his life. So it cost him quite a bit. And that's why I have put that dot from heaven to earth on the bottom. Indeed, Jesus emptied himself of all the glories of heaven. It cost him quite a bit to leave heaven and come down to earth. And therefore you see a dot that's below. Now at the age of 30, Jesus got baptized and inaugurated his public ministry. And the baptism was a high point of his life on earth because the Trinity was present there. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father spoke saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Father was making an announcement to the world to hear. And God the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and remained on him, the Bible says. In fact, this was the event that showed, without any doubt, to John the Baptist that Jesus, Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And John testifies to that. So I have placed that a little bit higher because it, it, you know, things are beginning to turn up a little bit. And then the next three years, Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom through word and deed. Through his teachings and miracles, he demonstrated that he was indeed the promised Messiah. He cast out demons, he healed the sick, he, he preached and taught, and people were amazed at his teaching and all of those. Sure, there was opposition, but nevertheless, the kingdom was advancing, so I have kind of put it slightly higher. Now, Jesus' transfiguration was another event of significance during his life on earth. His inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, got to see him in his glory. Up until then, they had only known Jesus in his bodily form, but a transfiguration, they had a greater understanding of his deity. So it was an important event, so I have put that at higher. In addition to that, at transfiguration, they also got to hear a voice saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In fact, both Peter and John would later write about these in their respective books in the New Testament. For example, the Apostle John writes in chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Refers back to the transfiguration. Second Peter, Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. So from a human point of view, everything kind of seemed to be going well. Upticks. But then suddenly... Judas Iscariot, 
one of his 12 disciples, who had walked closely with Jesus for three years, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. This led to Jesus' arrest and trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, flogging, crucifixion, death, and burial. That's probably the lowest point. This was, in fact, I believe this was one of the darkest moments in Jesus' life because he experienced separation from the Father because he was carrying or bearing our sins on the cross. So much so he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something that had never happened in the eternity past between Father and the Son. Even this darkest moment, this valley, was not a random event, but a carefully designed and orchestrated by God to redeem, redeem humanity from sin. This is what the Bible says. God made his son Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. By raising his son Jesus from the dead on the third day, God demonstrated his power over death. He gave us victory over sin. He gave us everlasting life. Then Jesus ascended to heaven and today sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning as king. And the best is yet to come, that he will come back again and establish his kingdom forever and forever. But you know what? God promised his son Jesus a glorious future. But the path to that glorious future was a zigzag, not a straight line, not even for Jesus, the Son of God. You get that? Not even for Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, a unique and highly favored son of his father, had to leave his homeland, heaven, and, and come down to earth where he, had, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver and brutally murdered. And what seemed like a setback and defeat was indeed God's carefully designed plan to save humanity. As promised God, the Father exalted Jesus to the highest place, bestowing on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joseph, the most favored son of his father, was ripped from his homeland and taken to Egypt where he took on the lowest position possible, that of a slave. Again, what seemed like a setback and a defeat was indeed God's carefully designed plan to save his chosen people, Israel, from famine. And as promised, God fulfilled his promise to Joseph by making him the second most powerful person in Egypt under Pharaoh. What is the meaning of all of this for us today? Here it is. In Christ, God has 
promised a glorious future for us, you and me. But that path to that glorious promise is a zigzag and not a straight line. When we face what seem like setbacks and defeats, remember these are God's carefully designed plans for our lives as He accomplishes His his greater purposes on earth. You know, these apparent defeats might come in the form of a career setback, a financial setback, a health setback, spiritual setbacks, Setbacks in families, whatever form, they might come and they will come. And they came for the Son of God. They came for Joseph. They will come for us. If you are in a valley today, a darkest moment in your life, remember this. Those God foreknew he also predestined to be confirmed to the likeness of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the promise for God's people. The Bible also says, he he who calls you, it's faithful. And he will surely do it. So, as we are thinking about joy now forever, hold on to the joy because the promise does exist. Hold on to the joy because the one who promised is faithful to complete that work in your life and also in my life. Keep the joy now and forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your promises in our lives, Lord, and thank you for the two examples that we looked at, and there are many more. Father, in this Christmas season, as we reflect on the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, help us as we go through these peaks and valleys to remember the fact they are carefully designed and orchestrated plans of you. That even in our darkest moments, in our darkest valleys, that we, we would hold on to your promise, hold on to the joy that comes from that promise and live for you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.